A couple of years ago, I felt God challenged me deeply to fast food for 21 days. I felt like God was saying, okay, Andrew, I want you to physically sacrifice, to physically suffer in order to press into obedience with me. And so for 21 days, I allowed nothing in my body other than water, no food at all. And I have to say, I struggled and wrestled and went back and forth as to whether I should actually share this story with you today, because I'm concerned, first of all, that you might think that in sharing this, that I'm kind of putting myself up there as some super holy person. But I trust if you're part of the Vine Church, you know that I'm not the super holy person. Okay, so, so that's good. But the second thing that I was concerned about is that you might hear me tell this story and then you might think that this is what you should do, that you should copy me and try to do something like that. And I just want to say that actually when you do something like this, it has to be a very specific call from God. Uh, It is incredibly difficult. It is actually physically quite dangerous. Uh, And what God calls us to in those moments is quite a radical thing. And so when I did it, uh, I I made sure I had a a community of support around me. I made sure I was accountable to people. Uh, I wasn't just doing it on my own own. And uh, I knew that I had the calling and the grace of God to step into that moment. So uh, make sure uh, that that's for you, uh, if that's what God ever calls you into. Most of the time, I tell people not to do it. But I share with you today about that experience because of what it birthed in me, what it actually forged in me that I think is central to what God wants to say to us today in his scriptures. Fasting for 21 days, having no food in my body was the hardest thing that I have probably physically ever done. Every single day, of course, my body was crying out for calories, for nutrition, for for nutrients, for whatever it needed to have that energy to keep going. But actually the hardest part of the journey of that 21 days wasn't the physical pain, it was the mental suffering and anguish that I went through. It's incredible what your mind does when your body is crying out for food. And I, I had to, I had constant days where there was just this mental anguish and suffering where I was fighting the temptations. The irony is in this 21 days, my family was watching actually a cooking show. I I kid you not. We were watching every night a cooking show and I had to sit there and kind of go, I am not going to be tempted to eat food in any way. And the only way I got through these 21 days was through the work of the Holy Spirit, was through his grace and his empowerment of me, the way that he strengthened me and moved in my heart and my life. That was the only way I was able to actually get through that time. And I I realized that what God was asking, the challenge he was requiring of me was, will I put him first? No matter how much I suffer, no matter how much I'm sacrificing, will I actually put him first? Will, Will I rely upon him and his help and his spirit above anything else? Even when my body and my mind is trying to fight against it, will I stand for him. I learned out of those 21 days that actually if God calls me to serve, and if that serving comes with suffering and and hardship, then by his grace, I am actually able to adhere to that service and to follow him. That personal strength was forged in me in that time. And it's not lost on me that actually that that lesson I had to learn happened just one year before 2019 and 2020. 
that, that God knew all of the stuff that Hong Kong was about to enter into. And he knew what the vine was about to face as it was dealing with a political upheaval in its city, as it was dealing then eventually with a pandemic that was going global. As we were dealing with all that, God knew the stress and the pressure and the suffering that would come on me in my leadership in the midst of that. And prior to that, he's like, I'm going to take you through something where you're going to discover a personal strength in you that's going to be there when you need it the most. See, if post-traumatic growth teaches us anything, it teaches us this, that actually trauma can be the place where we discover a newness in life, a discovery of a personal strength, where we find ourselves a conviction of character that would not have been there unless we had been through that trauma in the first place. That we might be able to emerge out of our hard times going, you know what, I know myself better. I may not be perfect, but I know that there is a conviction of the gospel that sits inside of me, a, a conviction of what Christ is calling me to, that wasn't there that I couldn't rely on prior to that trauma, but now it is. You see, the survival of a highly traumatic experience forges in us a, a character and a, and a focus of mind that rarely exists in those that have not faced a great trial or a great adversity. And you see, this is the beautiful thing, I think, about what we've been looking at in this series. This great invitation for us to think about our traumas, not as the stress they create, but actually as something that brings us into a newness with God. And here in my years of pastoring at the Vine, I've seen some of the worst things. I've seen people lose jobs. I've seen people lose family. I've seen people really struggle in their marriages. I've seen divorce and infidelity. I've seen uh, depression and anxiety grip people, mental health issues. I mean, you name it. And almost every single case, when you look at it, these places are fertile ground for God to do something in those people that would not have occurred otherwise. Here's the thing. Our trauma can actually create a boldness, a courage, and a conviction of character that is found in us because we've experienced a hardship and we have actually overcome it. Hmm. You know, the apostles are a case in point in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The apostles show to us this beautiful picture of what it is to stand with a new and renewed personal strength in God, despite what they have been through. We've been sharing a lot about the apostles' stories. I shared a couple of weeks ago about Peter and what we see in Peter's life and how, how Peter in the arrest of Jesus and he, he follows the crowd into the courtyards of the high priest and there warming himself by the fire realizes that he's in trouble, realizing that, that actually he might and his own life might also be at risk here. And as he's standing around that fireplace, he hears the call of that on his spirit and the trauma and the, the fear of it. And he denies Jesus three times right there. And then in the shame and the guilt of that, he retreats to the beach, goes back to the very thing that he used to do, a fisherman before, not a fisher of men anymore, but a, a fisher of fish, literally, into the comfort and security of what he's always known. And Jesus has to go there, meet him, create a fire for him, and release him back into the restoration of who he is by asking him three times, do you love me? And that journey that Peter goes on is part of the trauma he needed to form what we eventually see in him. And it's not just Peter. All the apostles suffer Good Friday and hide themselves in fear on Easter Saturday. But it's in the resurrection of Jesus 
And then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that there is such a personal strength of character and conviction that falls upon the apostles that we see them do incredible feats for the church. We see them do for the church what the gates of hell cannot come against it. And, and here's the thing. The book of Acts is the picture of a group of people who have such profound conviction and personal strength simply because of the trauma they had been through and the resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Spirit that's been birthed upon them. And you see throughout the book of Acts amazing moments where these apostles, the ones that had hid, the ones that had fled, the ones that were insecure, were able to stand in front of the worst powers that were trying to persecute them and not falter in their conviction of the gospel to say, I will not be ashamed of the thing that has been formed in me by the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you today with this, that I believe that same personal strength and that same sense of conviction can also be in you. Actually, let me say it this way. It needs to be in you. I want to say today that I believe that the last one and a half years here in Hong Kong and all the trauma that it's created for all of us is actually the very thing that we have needed to be able to have a personal strength and conviction of the gospel in us for everything that is about to come. I believe that God is going to meet you in this hour and in this time And he's going to so strengthen your heart that no matter what might take place in the future, you will stand up and be counted for the gospel. Could you imagine a church like that? Acts gives us a picture of that church. And today I want to to share a story actually out of Acts chapter 5. It's right early on in the story of the early church. It's literally probably just a few months from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in this story, the apostles have begun the church by regularly meeting every day on the temple courts, just right outside the temple in Jerusalem. And they would gather in those courts and they would share boldly the message of Jesus. They would say that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one that God has raised from the dead, ascended to the heavenly realms, that he's the one with all the power and authority to forgive and restore. And they preached the gospel and many people, many Jewish people were coming to faith. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, when this small little sect of Judaism was beginning and beginning to say that there is this carpenter from Nazareth who was actually the son of God, the powers to be, the power of the Jewish authorities of the day absolutely hated the guys for doing this. I mean, they were so angry and so upset. They were spreading this rumor about Jesus being the Messiah and they were doing everything in their power to stamp it out. Anytime that you speak out the gospel and that gospel stands against people who are in power, that power is going to fight back. And what you see in Acts chapter 5 is this power asserting itself onto the apostles. The power was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 71 men who actually were responsible for the control of the worship that happened in the temple. They essentially did three things. They set the temple service. They actually controlled all of the bartering system that took place for the sacrifices. So when people came to to bring a sacrifice and they purchased the sacrifice at the temple, that was controlled by the 71 in the Sanhedrin. They actually profited off of that sacrificial system. 
And the third thing they did was actually set the common laws for the Jewish people and how they should interact with one another. So they were both the religious authority, but also the political authority for how the Jewish people worked and lived together in that time. And these people drag the the apostles before them to hold them to court. To basically say, we want you to stop preaching the gospel because what you're doing in our eyes is blasphemous. I, w- I want to pick up the story actually uh, from that point. And I'm going to start in verse 27 of Acts chapter 5. Is everybody okay? You guys all right? You with me? Okay, cool. I want to read this to you. Here it says this. Having brought the apostles, that's the Sanhedrin, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priests. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, they said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. I want you to to notice what's happening here. They, They come and they call the whole of the apostles to account. And they actually, funnily enough, kind of reveal all their cards at once. They say, look, we know that you're going around preaching even though we told you not to. And we know that you're filling the whole land with this idea of what it is to see Jesus as the Messiah. And not only that, notice what they say here. He says, you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You're determined to put his death on our shoulders. So they're basically charging the apostles with heresy, with blasphemy, and with kind of charging the Sanhedrin with the guilt of the murder of this Jesus from Nazareth. I want you to see how Peter responds, starting in verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied this, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our father raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness to the sins of Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so it is the Holy Spirit whom God has now given to those who obey him. Check this church. This is the same Peter who just months prior is standing in the courtyard of the high priest's house, warming himself at the fire. And when they say, you knew Jesus, he denies it three times. Now, just a few months later, he's standing in front of the high priest, in front of all of the Sanhedrin, and he basically says three things to them. First of all, you're a bunch of murderers. That you've actually hung this Jesus on the cross. That it was you. That the blood is actually on your hands. And then he says, not only that, but you're actually a bunch of sinners. He actually says, here's the crazy thing. God has raised Jesus from the death and he's put him now at the right hand of the father. The right hand always symbolized the place of power and authority. And Peter preaches the gospel to them. He says, now because of the savior and prince, Lord Jesus, at the right hand of the father, anyone who asks for his forgiveness, anyone who repents will be forgiven by God. He's, He's placing it before the Sanhedrin and before the high priest. He says, I know you killed Jesus, but guess what? there is still grace even for you. There is still the ability for you to come under the grace of God because Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And if you confess, he will respond and forgive you. And if that wasn't enough, then Peter throws in an extra piece of hot sauce. He basically goes, hey, you know this Holy Spirit thing? This Holy Spirit thing that you try to control as the Sanhedrin in the temple that you've kind of made all about the temple? Well, guess what? That Holy Spirit right now is poured out on 
anyone who's obedient to Jesus. Not just related anymore to what's happening in this building, but to anyone who's obedient with Jesus. Peter stands in front of the Sanhedrin and he says, you're murderers, you're sinners, and guess what? The Holy Spirit is not contained by your laws or by your power anymore. And you have to ask yourself, how does Peter do this? I mean, what has happened in him? What is driving him to have such fortitude of his convictions that he's willing to say these things to the most powerful people around him in the region? Well, we find that answer right at the start of verse 29. He says this, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than human beings. No, this is Peter. And Peter, it's almost like he's saying this, I know what it is not to obey God. I know what the trauma has done to me. I know what it was to stand by that fire on that day and deny even knowing Jesus. I know what it's like to allow fear to hold back the gospel. I know what it's like to confess that I got it wrong, that I screwed up. But guess what? Jesus came and met me and he met me and restored me and renewed me and turned me into the person I am today. And through all of that trauma, a conviction of spirit has come. I will never deny him again. You know what? I will always obey God, even if it comes at the cost of disobeying humanity, human beings, the human law. Now, I want you to hear this. Peter is not totally disregarding the law. He's not trying to stir up people to be rebellious against the human law. Peter lived most of his life in conviction and obedience to the Jewish laws around him. But what he is saying is this. When those laws come into conflict with the gospel, you will always find me on the side of the gospel. When those two things conflict, I will always stand up and be counted for the blood of Jesus. Maybe before in my story, I found myself on the wrong side of that equation. But through the fortitude that is now birthed and forged like diamonds is the crushing of coal and the crushing of my trauma. I stand before you now and I say, I am on the side of the gospel. I will obey God, even if it means having to disobey you. I, I mean, this is Peter saying, I put God first. My 21 days of fasting was me learning what it was, despite everything my body and my mind was saying, to put God first. And I don't know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, Andrew, I put God first. That's what I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm a God first person. Me and my family, we put God first. You know? here's, here's something that I've discovered in all my years of pastoring. It's easy to put God first when it comes with little personal costs associated with living it out. But when we put in God first, when, when it actually convicts us, when it actually comes with great cost and great personal suffering, when that happens, we so easily find ourselves on the side of what is safe rather than what is faithful. When personal costs, when putting Jesus first actually impacts us, when actually he's going to have a problem, a suffering for us, we so often side with the safety net rather than being willing to stand up and be counted as faithful. That's the lesson the apostles had discovered. 
that's the thing that, that God had showed them. And they're willing to stand in front of the Sanhedrin, no matter what the Sanhedrin might do, and declare the reality of that. And, and the Sanhedrin wants to kill them, literally wants to kill them. And Gamaliel stands up, one of the Sanhedrin, and says, no, no, don't kill them. Actually, here's the thing. If we let them go and it's not from God, it's going to fail. If we let them go and it's from God and we persecute them, then that is on us. And I, I want to jump right to the end of this part of the story. And I want to read you what happens right at the end. This is starting in verse 40. His speech, that's Gamaliel's, persuaded them. They called the apostle in and they had them flogged. Then ordered them not to speak of the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They brought the apostles in They told them no more preaching in the name of Jesus. And then they flogged them. They beat them. This is not some light little punishment. I mean, they went away with probably broken ribs, bruised faces, closed eyes. They were beaten up severely. There would have been weeks of need for recovery from the pain of what they had just gone through. And they leave there rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering in the name of Jesus. From hiding and fleeing persecution for rejoicing in the name of God and the suffering that that brings, what change has happened for these men. And I love this idea that they were able to rejoice. They weren't happy about their suffering. They're not finding joy in the act of suffering itself, but they're able to find rejoicing because actually the suffering was proof to them that they were living out the plans of Jesus. See, they realize that if we're going to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean just following him into the great moments, the miracles, the walking on water, the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah, Jesus did those things and he conquered that. But Jesus also went to the cross. Jesus also was ostracized. Jesus was ridiculed and beaten and abused and eventually killed on the cross. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we want the miracles, yes, but we also need to realize that in following Jesus and living out our convictions, it might also bring suffering to us. Why? Because actually to follow Jesus means we will encounter both. Oh, we will rejoice that we're not just receiving the miracles, but we have a strength of conviction in us that we can find solidarity in the sufferings of Jesus. That actually maybe it's in the suffering that I might become to know him most. Hmm. Over these 21 days of our fast and over these devotions we've been reading, I don't know about you, but I've been blown away by the stories of the men and women from the vine who have suffered real trauma. We've heard stories of those that have lost loved ones, stories of those that that have had great um, conviction in their lives, stories of those that were convicted of sin, stories of those uh, who lost their jobs or or everything. Everything you can imagine has been in the last 21 days. And I've been so encouraged that in every single story, I see glimmers of the awakening of a personal conviction. I see a growth in the people who are able to then testify that God has done something in them that would not have happened 
unless that trauma had been there in the first place. Today's the last day, and my mom wrote the devotional today. If you haven't read it today, your senior pastor, the son of the person who wrote it, is telling you to go read it. And my mom would be super embarrassed about this, and she wouldn't want me to admit this, but I'm actually going to quote her in one of my sermons, you know. Uh, And my mom wrote this amazing devotional today about losing her husband two years ago, which, of course, is my father who died two years ago. And I want to read you something that my mom wrote. She said this, So often I know God has carried me in times of trouble, grief, and pain, and sorrow, even though I thought I was walking alone. God is where you can be safe when life is hard and he never leaves those who are looking for his help. Isn't that beautiful? Such encouraging words from my mom to say that God is right there in the midst of whatever it is that we might be challenged with. Those are some of the final words of the 21 days of devotions. But let me read to you some words that came to us at the very first day of devotions. And these are written by Joshua Wong. Let me read these uh, to us. God's intention is to leverage all of our experiences, especially the painful ones, so that our growth and progress are beyond anything that we can imagine. That God would take even the worst things and in those forge in us something out of those painful experiences that are the very thing that we would need next. Here's what the apostles did. They allowed their past trauma and the subsequent healing of the Holy Spirit to prophetically forge in them a personal strength exactly for the moment of launching the first church in the first century. God knew what he needed the apostles to do ahead of them. And he understood better than anyone the persecution that was about to come. So God takes them through the fire of their trauma to prophetically create in them a resolve strong enough to stand up to the Sanhedrin and say, God first. And I want to say this over us as a church. And this is really important and actually quite strong for us. I believe that the last year and a half here in Hong Kong, with everything we've seen politically and everything we've gone through with this pandemic, all of it was God's fire in which he is forging prophetically in us a strength of character and a conviction of the faith so that when the time comes in the future, the church of Hong Kong can stand up and be counted for the gospel so that the church in our city can stand up against whatever persecution might come and not be ashamed of the gospel that we might be able to stand in front of whatever Sanhedrins might be in front of us in the future and Boldly proclaim the gospel regardless of the cost. I think this is what God's doing in us, guys. I think he knows what's ahead. And I'm not, I'm not trying to preach doom and gloom on us. I'm not trying to say all this bad stuff is going to happen. What I am saying is this. Will we be found faithful? And I think the answer to that question comes from this trauma we're experiencing right now. Will we allow it to forge in us? something that wasn't there before? Are we actually willing, like the disciples and like people we've seen in our city recently, to go to prison because of the conviction of the gospel? Are we willing to stand for the gospel no matter what might actually come our way. Not because we glory in the suffering, not because we want to be victims under the wheels of injustice, but because we have a conviction in our hearts that we will obey 
God first and foremost. That we will not be ashamed of the gospel, no matter what might happen to us personally. Stephen refused to be silent in front of his critics and he was stoned to death. Peter refused to be silent in front of the people that wanted to pull him down. And he was in prison many times. Paul and Silas refused to be silent with their conviction of the faith. And they were in prison and eventually martyred. And I wonder whether the vine will add its name to that list. I wonder whether we as Christians here in Hong Kong would be willing to add our name to that list. That's that's not a, a small thing to say. But will we, like the apostles... Be able to stand before whatever is in front of us and say that I consider it great joy that I've been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Peter, at the end of his life, he wrote this. Writing to a church that was struggling and suffering. And Peter, just a few moments before his own death, says this. This is 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12. Dear friends, Do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Church, we stand together in an important time of our city's history. We stand together, I think, in an important time of the vine's history. And I believe everything that we're going through right now, if we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, if we allow the Holy Spirit to come and have its way in us like it did in Pentecost, there will be forged in us exactly what it is that we need for whatever might be ahead. I believe that that personal strength is being raised up in the church in our city right now. And I believe that that personal strength is being raised up in your spirit in this moment right now. I want to stand with you. I want to pray for you. And I want to believe that together we can be those on the roof, a community of faith, standing with the ones who are persecuted and oppressed and are pulled down. And Christ would look up and see us and say, because of their faith, I will do what only I can do. Let's pray, church. Father, we stand with you now. And Father, we want to have such a conviction of faith, Lord. Father, we're humbled by Peter's story. A man who fled, hid, denied, was ashamed, and yet restored and renewed by you, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, And then with such conviction could stand before the powers of his day and say, I'm going to obey God no matter the cost. Lord, it was that faith and that personal strength and that conviction of spirit that formed a church. And Lord, we the church today, we've so often come to define the blessings of God as the absence of pain. That we come to define and think that that God's blessings are health and, and having a good family and making sure I'm safe and comfortable when the first church defined blessing as suffering for the name of Jesus. Father, I pray that, Father, in our hour, in our moment, you would fortify your church, Lord. 
I pray that you would do prophetically in us right now what is needed for the years to come. I believe that you're returning for a spotless bride. And I believe your spirit, like a Pentecost, is at work right now in powerful, beautiful, amazing ways that you are able to do what we cannot do. And that ultimately we know that our own personal strength will never be enough. And so we say, come Holy Spirit, would you fall on us as a church like you did that day for the apostles and the disciples? Would you come and fill us with such power and conviction and faith and hope that we would never be ashamed of the gospel? Father, would you release us, Lord, to love our neighbor, to stand for you, and to be your church on its knees in prayer. Move, Holy Spirit, move. Come, Lord Jesus, now. As we worship and respond, speak to us.